Kindred spirits, we're back. Woo! Welcome to the first episode of the second season of Kindred Spirits Book Club, the podcast where two grown-ass ladies geek out about Anne of Green Gables and books generally. We are really thrilled for this next chapter in our podcasting lives and can't wait to share it with you. This season, we are going to be talking about Anne's young adult years in Anne of Avonlea, Anne of the Island, and Anne of Windy Poplars. And while our conversations will stay centered on the Anne series, we also plan to incorporate into our discussions some of Anne's literary soul sisters and other books and authors who are doing the same kinds of things that Ella Montgomery was doing with Anne then and now. But for now, we're back. Kelly, how are you? How have you been? Well, I have enjoyed our little break. With all of my extra free time, I went back and read the Miss Marple books, Agatha Christie's Miss Marple Mysteries. Okay. Although I've read a lot of Agatha Christie, I had never read those, but I felt like as I'm sort of entering middle age, this would be the perfect time to catch up with an elderly spinster in a small English village. And those are (laughs) super fun. So you're entering your Miss Marple era is what you're telling me. I am. That's right, Reagan. I'm entering my Miss Marple era. I love it. If there are any local small town murders, I'm your girl. But I have to say the highlight of my last month or so was really getting to see your daughter, Alice, as Miss Hannigan and Annie last weekend. Oh, well, she is going to be delighted to hear you say that. It was truly such a treat. Now, some of you may remember Alice. She was our guest for one of our episodes last season. She is Reagan's 10-year-old daughter, and she is very precocious, very articulate, very thoughtful kid, and she brought all of those skills and more to the stage in her portrayal of Miss Hannigan and Annie. She, as the kids say, Reagan, she ate and left no crumbs. (laughs) (laughs) She was so animated. She really got into all of her songs and, you know, got all the jokes and she was just a joy. We had so much fun watching her. Oh, she was so delighted you came. She did have quite a group of fans cheering her on. Oh my goodness, yes! Yeah, she did. It's been so much fun watching her. I mean, you know, it's quite a production. This group that she's done this production with is really fantastic and they really go all out. So it was wonderful watching all of her hard work pay off. They've been rehearsing for three months almost. So really getting to see it kind of all come together and see her in character. I mean, we've been hearing little girls, you know, echoing through our house nonstop for the last three months, but really getting to see her on stage, belting it out and just Mm -hmm. hamming it up was fantastic. Oh yeah. She was chewing the scenery. She leaned into everything. And you know what? That is a role you can't really overdo. So it was perfect. It really, really was. When she was auditioning, she was hoping for any kind of speaking role. This is only her second kind of production with this group. And this is their elementary school only production. Her previous productions that she did with them went from third grade all the way through 12th grade. So so she was very much a background ensemble character for that. So she was hoping for any kind of role with lines, but she was was hoping for something kind of good. And (laughs) getting Miss Hannigan was a big, a big get. Oh, well, it was fabulous. And I really, really enjoyed it. So Reagan, I think I'm going to kick off our season with a huge apology to Anne of Avonlea. Okay. In some of our season one episodes, I know I said that this is one of my least favorite Anne books and that I was not looking forward to discussing it on the podcast. But having recently reread it in preparation for today's discussion, I now realize that this book is a work of art. (laughs) I laughed, I cried, my emotions are in the gamut, and you will be shocked to hear this, Reagan. I even found Davy Keith adorable and charming. Hmm. Apparently, I just needed to be about 25 years distant from my own childhood as a beleaguered older sister to two rambunctious younger brothers to find the little boy antics funny. (laughs) Maybe that is what you needed, a little distance. And I'll admit, I did love more about Anne of Avonlea with this rereading than I had in the past. 
I don't know if I like Davy much better than I have in the past, but I did really love a lot of the beautiful Prince Edward Island passages and the way we see Anne's growing maturity while still having her sense of wonder and whimsy. And maybe those just didn't resonate with me when I was younger, or maybe having done such a deep dive on Green Gables, I really appreciated the continuation of the themes that I loved in Green Gables. I think that's right. I think because we got so familiar with Green Gables, we were really primed to notice everything that Ella Montgomery was continuing on with Anne of Avonlea. I just loved reading it. I think a lot of those things that we love about Anne start to kind of come together in this book in a really beautiful way. Anne still manages to get into like a few funny scrapes and her imagination is just running at glorious full steam. Her energy and ambition for friendship and community work really propels the plot forward. There are these tiny tendrils of romance. It is kind of a perfect Anne book and I am sorry I ever said otherwise. (laughs) So maybe this moves up further in your rankings? I think so. Yeah, I think we'll have to revisit those rankings at some point and I might, might scoot it on up. So we often name a kindred spirit for each one of our episodes, but we couldn't decide on one for this episode. I think we have a lot of contenders. I'd be curious to hear yours, but Anne of Avonlea introduces us to all sorts of amazingly fun and funny secondary characters like Mr. Harrison, the cantankerous and slovenly neighbor, the charming and whimsical Miss Lavender, Anne's good friend from Queens, Priscilla, Davy and Dora Keith, Anne's student Paul Irving, and then we get more character development from Marilla and Mrs. Lind and from favorites like Diana and Gilbert. Like there's really no way to go wrong here. Yeah, there are a lot of memorable new characters and building upon some of our favorite previous characters. Mm -hmm. So for me, I'm going to say while there's no one standout that I think works for the whole book, for this episode, I'm going to nominate Miss Lavender because I think she's the person that Anne connects with the most, the new character that really lets Anne indulge her whimsical side with an equal partner, not someone who is humoring her or confused by her whimsy or her poetry. So that's one of the things I love about Miss Lavender. How about you? Do you have a nominee for this book? I'm going to nominate Mr. Harrison for our kindred spirit because first of all, he's so funny. He's a wonderful wonderful character, so colorful. He's a man who moves to the farm next door to Green Gables, and he and Anne get started off on the wrong foot, and there's all sorts of rumors about how he is slovenly, and he has this very obscene parrot, and it's just, he's such a colorful character. But what I really enjoy about him, and what the work that I think he's doing in this book that's really interesting, is that he is the newcomer to Avonlea. So it is through his eyes that we get to see some of the other characters and things that we already feel like we know and are taking for granted. So we get to hear what he thinks about Mrs. Lynde, for example, what he thinks about the Avonlea Village Improvement Society. We get all of those kind of outsider opinions from him. And I think it's a really interesting twist and way to look at what's happening in the book. Sure, because... Anne is now the Avonlea insider. Exactly. Yeah. She's explaining things to Mr. Harrison Mm -hmm. and sometimes defending the quirks of Avonlea to Mr. Harrison. Exactly right. Yeah. So it's, it's great that we have him to kind of be our audience avatar in a way. Yeah. Well, our quote of the episode is from Anne herself ruminating on a particularly lovely day. She says, I believe the nicest and sweetest days are not those on which anything very splendid or wonderful or exciting happens, but just those that bring simple little pleasures, following one another softly like pearls slipping off a string. I love this quote because I think it's very much the thesis statement for Anne of Avonlea. Nothing big happens plot-wise, but the beauty of the book is in the simple pleasures. I agree with you, Reagan. I really, really love that quote. And it's a reminder that sort of simple pleasures can be found even on days that seem like they are like every other day. So for our story club this week, we are going to be recapping Anne of Avonlea, the second book of Ellen Montgomery's series about Anne Shirley. Anne of Avonlea was originally published in 1909, hot on the heels of the runaway success of Anne of Green Gables. It picks up just after Anne of Green Gables ends, with Anne about to start teaching at the Avonlea School and follows her over the next two years. We start right off with Maud showing us both how Anne has grown and matured 
and how she is still impulsive and heedless. We get a download from our old friend, Mrs. Rachel Lind, about all the new residents in Avonlea, foreshadowing many of Anne's encounters with new students and new neighbors. We also get the beginning of Anne's friendship with the new neighbor, Mr. Harrison. It starts inauspiciously with Mr. Harrison yelling at Anne for letting her Jersey cow get into his oat field and trample his crops. Then, when Anne and Diana are on their way home the next day, they spot a Jersey cow munching away in Mr. Harrison's field. They chase the cow until they're all wet and muddy, and Anne, in a terrible temper after that, impulsively sells her right on the spot to Mr. Shearer, who's passing by. Unfortunately, when Anne gets home, she finds that her cow is still locked in the barn, and she has sold Mr. Harrison's cow by mistake. Anne heads off to apologize to Mr. Harrison, and we know that Anne is excellent at apologies. And indeed, Mr. Harrison, who is a bit of ashamed of his own temper the previous day, forgives her and invites her to tea. Anne is inclined to think that Mr. Harrison may be a kindred spirit, but that his foul-mouthed parrot Ginger is not. Reagan, when I tell you, this whole sequence had me in hysterics. <laughs> it's so funny and clever. And I want to say that Maude does a really nice job of telling us exactly who Anne is at this point in time with this scene. I was thinking about how important it is to show that Anne actually owns this cow, right? It really levels Anne up as an adult, someone who can be responsible for an expensive asset like livestock, who can make buying and selling decisions, and who is ultimately held accountable if things go wrong. I kind of think a contemporary analog here in terms of value and responsibility might be like your first car, right? Sure, sure. Also, I think this scene shows us that even though Anne has grown up in demonstrable ways, right, she's taking ownership of this troublesome cow, she's standing up for herself against Mr. Harrison, her temper is still as fiery as ever. She sells the cow hastily, goaded on by her own impulsiveness, and then, of course, she sells the wrong cow. (laughs) It is such a classic Anne scrape, even as we are seeing this new grown-up version of Anne. Anne is very nervous about her first day teaching, both because many of her students are her former classmates and also because she's comparing herself to Miss Stacy. As Marilla Riley observes, you can hardly fail completely in one day and there's plenty more days coming. Trouble with you, Anne, is that you'll expect to teach those children everything and reform all their faults right off. And if you can't, you'll think you failed. I think that really describes many people in the helping professions when they're fresh out of school and about to step into the working world. It certainly did for me when I was a brand new baby social worker. Ideals need time to settle into the real world. I had similar experiences early on in my career as well, right? You always think you're going to hit it home run the first time you step up to plate. Yes. And that if you don't, it must be because you're not good at this and you're not meant to do this. Right. Well, Anne and Jane and Gilbert, all brand new teachers about to start their careers, have a little debate about whether or not corporal punishment is a good way of keeping order in the classroom. And Anne is firm about never using whipping, while Jane is rather blasé about the necessity of it. I know, sweet Jane. She's just like, I'm, you know, spare the rod, spoil the child. (laughs) She literally says that. Yeah. (laughs) But, you know, I think this is a really interesting character moment for Gilbert because we see him trying to like walk the tightrope of a middle ground here. On the one hand, he does want to live up to Anne's ideals, but it seems like he also might believe in his heart of heart that a stern smack might be necessary in some situations. Regardless of her nerves, Anne does fine on her first day, confiscating some trained crickets even, which, by the way, what's with the crickets in the Avonlea schoolroom? Where are all these crickets coming from? Why do people always have crickets? (laughs) Anne also meets some new students, including Paul Irving, a 10-year-old boy. We'll talk more about Paul later in this episode, but Anne is convinced that Paul is a kindred spirit genius who will make her teaching life worthwhile. We also meet Anthony Pye, a new Pye kid in town who is living up to the Pye name by being surly and contradictory, and Mrs. Donnell the mother of two new students who is clearly putting on airs and is meant to be a figure of fun. Oh my goodness, Mrs. Donnell, I had to laugh. And what little boy wants to be known as Sinclair instead of Jake? This struck me as such a clear callback to Anne wanting to be known as Cordelia instead of Anne. And it's like Maude has now shown us both sides of this desire for a more elegant name. 
in 11-year-old Anne's case, it was a very relatable hope that a more romantic name would make for a more romantic life. But in Mrs. Donnell's case, the pretension of wanting to appear more sophisticated than the humble people around you, right? Yeah. Anne gets to experience the other side of someone wanting to be known by another name. And to her credit, she can see the humor in it. I think it's a good point about Mrs. Donnell, that flip side, because the other thing about Mrs. Donnell, besides her pretension about her name, name. is the way that she dresses her children and the way she dresses herself, which is far too fancy for what she's doing, far too fancy for school. She's got the fanciness, but it's not good quality. She's taking all of the frills and lace and, and silk, but it's clearly not well cared for and not good quality. So again, if you think about 11-year-old Anne who just wants to be clad in fancy, beautiful things, 11-year-old Anne might have thought Mrs. Donnell very fine. Oh, really? Right? Now, as an adult, she's able to see kind of the silliness of being overdressed. Yeah, she can see through some of that pretension and the putting on airs and, you know, thinking yourself better than your surroundings or better than your neighbors. But you're absolutely right. I mean, at the end of the day, her kids are going to go play in the mud like all the other kids regardless. Right. You know, <laughs> whether or not they're wearing frills and fripperies or whether or not they're wearing plain dresses and aprons. Exactly. No matter how much his mom insists, St. Clair whips anybody who doesn't call him Jake. Yep. (laughs) So then we also do hear about the AVIS or the Avonlea Village Improvement Society, an idea of Anne and Gilbert's that would have the young folks in town working together to make improvements in the village. Clearly, Anne and Gilbert have become fast friends in the intervening few weeks between the end of Green Gables and the beginning of this book. We also get our first mention of Fred Wright, who's the vice president of the AVIS, Gilbert being president, Anne is secretary, and Diana is treasurer. The adults in Avonlea are dubious, with Mrs. Wright calling it a courting club, but all the young adults are in it, and they all start canvassing the village to raise funds. So we get a lot of encounters with the colorful residents of Avonlea as Anne and Diana knock on doors. And of course, Mrs. Wright is kind of right. It is kind of a courting club, isn't it? I think their aims are noble beautifying Avonlea, but it also seems like it's primarily an excuse for these not-quite-children-but-not-yet-married set of Avonlea to hang out unsupervised. Exactly. It gives them something to do and a reason to hang out with each other on a regular basis. Yeah. Of course, there's going to be plenty of flirting and courting happening. And I also think Anne is, I think, extremely sincere about the ABIS's aims because she's not quite ready for romance herself. And I think a lot of her peers are like, sure, a good excuse to hang out Mm -hmm. together. But she's there for the mission. And I think some of them truly are like, oh, I'll go canvas these streets with my crush or whatever. (laughs) Absolutely. Yes, we need to have a meeting. (laughs) Let me bring my special pie, you know, for the object of my affection. Yep. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then my own personal nemesis enters the story. It turns out that Marilla's distant relative, Mary Keith, is dying and is leaving behind six-year-old twins, Davy and Dora. Mary's brother is way out west in a logging camp and can take the children in the spring once he's married, but the children will need to stay somewhere local until he's able to have them. And here we see enter Dora Keith, who is tidy, dutiful, and obedient. And the rakish, mischievous, downright wild Davy Keith. Anne's heart is melted by the idea of these soon-to-be orphaned children. And of course, having experienced both being unwanted and finding a haven at Green Gables herself, she wants to provide the same for these kids, pressuring Marilla to take them using, quote, Marilla's only vulnerable point, her stern devotion to what she believed to be her duty. So... In due course, the twins arrive at Green Gables, and just as Anne did, by being observed by Mrs. Lynde, who notes that Davy is trying to pull the pony's tail from the cart, and Dora is sitting as if she's been, quote, starched and ironed. And Dora is pretty much a non-entity for most of the story, primarily being the victim of Davy's pranks, and otherwise just following directions, being helpful, and honestly rather boring. Davy, on the other hand, is naughty curious, constantly in motion, and lacking any sort of sense or morals. And he's constantly in search of fun by any means necessary. 
although he is also affectionate with Anne and Marilla. His introduction to church involves him dropping a huge caterpillar down the back of a random girl's dress, and it's immediately clear that the trouble Davy gets in is of a very different sort than Anne's own escapades. Before the chapter is out, he's also gotten Dora to walk the pig pen fence and fall in, and then doused her under the water pump and hidden a toad in Marilla's bed. Davy has so many of these scrapes throughout the book that we won't recount them all, but Davy's two phrases most often heard are, I want to know, following some extremely random question, and, but it's awful fun when he's been caught doing something terrible just to liven up his life. I truly did find Davy a lot more charming on this reread, and he's actually not in the book as much as I remembered. For some reason, he loomed really large in my memory of Anne of Avonlea, but in reality, he's kind of only on the page here and there. Like, a lot of chapters will sort of end with a cute Davy moment. We then check back in with the AVIS who are planning to paint the social hall with funds they've raised from canvassing as their first project. The pies are rather <laughs> pushing the AVIS around by dint of there being so many of them, and they wouldn't contribute unless their relation Joshua Pie got the job of painting the hall. So between Roger Pie being assigned the job to pick up the paint and Joshua Pye doing the painting, it turns out that the hall ends up painted a terribly vibrant blue rather than the pretty green the AVIS had picked out. This is yet another version of the mix-up that sent Anne to the Cuthberts in the first place. The AVIS chose paint color 147, but somehow, between telling Roger's son the number 147 and Roger getting to town, the number got changed to 157. Folks, did we learn nothing? Write that stuff down instead of word of mouth. I know, another game of telephone gone terribly, terribly wrong. Yes. Regan, what color blue do you think this building actually was? Because I think that most blues, even like pretty bright blues, look nice on buildings. So I was having trouble figuring out what this looked like and what would be such an appalling blue color that everyone in the village and many villages beyond Avonlea even would know about it and comment on it. And maybe part of it was just because that's not typically a color that a building is painted, so it really stands out. Sure. But, you know, there is a house in our neighborhood that is a pretty terrible bright blue. And I love blue, but it's a very, very blue house. Somewhere between, <laughs> like, a cerulean blue and a royal blue. Oof. Yeah, and if that color were on a dress, I might love it. Like, it's not the color itself, but it is a lot on a house, I think. Yeah, a lot of blue. In any case, Anne is absolutely mortified. But despite this, the Avonlea folks actually rally around the AVIS improvers and blame the pies. As a result, lots of the villagers spontaneously decide to make improvements that the AVIS had been hoping for, clearing out stumps along their property and the like. We next get into some more kid hijinks. Davy scares the bejesus out of everyone by locking Dora in Mr. Harrison's shed and then suggesting that she fell into the well when Anne and Marilla couldn't find her anywhere. They even drag the well to search for her body, all with Davy looking on. When they finally conclude that Dora hasn't fallen in the well, Anne eventually finds her locked up at Mr. Harrison's and finds out that not only had Davy done it, he had been deliberately lying to her and Marilla all day, declaring he had no idea where Dora was. And then here's the thing about Davy, he's not sorry he did it, he's just sorry he got caught. And he had truly been assuming that Anne would also find it funny, the way she did some of his other pranks. He thought it would be funny to scare everyone. When Anne doesn't find it funny, Davy feels no remorse about scaring Dora or Marilla, only remorse that he made Anne cry. He confesses that he had been trying hard to be as good as Paul Irving, whom he knows that Anne likes, but somehow didn't know that lying was wrong. And in the end, Anne takes him to task about telling whoppers, but not about scaring Dora. They end up talking about the moral relativity of lying, which Anne finds very charming. And right there, this is the crux of my problem with Davy. Yeah. He's supposed to be this mischievous little scamp because of his neglectful upbringing, but I assume we are supposed to find him lovable because he loves Anne and because he asks the kind of childlike questions that always make adults pause and take stock of what they think they know. But there's not really a core of goodness in him. And he's never held to task for how his pranks actually hurt people, particularly Dora. Both Marilla and Anne prefer him to Dora because he has more personality. As Anne says, Dora is too good. She'd behave just as well as if there wasn't a soul to tell her what to do. She was born already brought up, so she doesn't need us. And I think we always love best the people who need us. Davy needs us badly. That might be true, but my problem throughout this book with Davy is that he's never, ever sorry about hurting anyone but Anne. He loves Anne, and he wants Anne to love him, 
and is only sorry that he makes Anne disappointed in him, even fearing that Anne won't love him. That is supposed to be enough for us to love him and makes his experiences more valuable than Dora's experience. He causes trouble to have fun and he doesn't mind the casualties. Oh, Reagan, that's such a good point about how his lovability somehow makes his experiences more valuable than Dora's experiences. That's There's a real unfairness there. Yeah. And there's that sort of like casual cruel streak to Davy that makes me like him less. You know, whether it's him looking forward to seeing an animal slaughtered or just throwing the whole household into an uproar and truly upsetting Dora just for the fun of it. I'm curious, what do you think Maud was trying to do with Davy? Because while some of his antics are very funny and serve a similar function as Anne's scrapes from the first book, some of Davy's misadventures are very mean-spirited in a way that Anne never was. Do you think that Davy is maybe here to show the depths of Anne's compassion for lost children? Or maybe there's kind of a bigger overarching moral about showing to readers that even really depraved children can be redeemed with love and affection and (laughs) maybe Marilla Cuthbert's brand of stern, no-nonsense upbringing. (laughs) It's a good question. I don't know, to be honest. I always wonder whether there is a miscalculation on Maud's part about what types of pranks are actually funny. I mean, she wouldn't think that the whole household being upset about Dora potentially being dead at the bottom of a well was funny, right? Right. I actually think there's a bit of some old-fashioned boys-will-be-boys sexism happening with Davy, And that's probably why I react so strongly to it. Just like we talked about the way that Gilbert's hair-pulling and teasing as portrayed in one of the modern graphic novels is excused as, he likes you. It really bugs me that Anne excuses Davy's cruelty as, he just hasn't been brought up properly. It excuses the true harm done by Davy's pranks that is sort of an insidious kind of sexism. And there's a sexism in there that is... One of those things that really bothers me, and I think that's what really bothers me about Davy, because we never get any of Dora's perspective or Anne's interaction with Dora. Not that Anne, I'm sure, didn't care that Dora was really upset, but we don't see any of that. We only see, yeah, we only see her interaction with Davy and Davy being upset that Anne is upset, Mm -hmm. as opposed to like Dora is in hysterics when Anne finds her. She's been locked in the shed for hours and hours and there just isn't any of this like that Dora's experience of this is important to pull from right whereas the important thing for Davy is that he learned a lesson and he learned a lesson about not telling lies because it made Anne sad not because you shouldn't do that to your sister because that's bad yes it's an upsetting passage for sure Anyway, we follow this Davy chapter with more of Anne's teaching experience, mostly her telling stories about the wild things the kids in her class have said or written, and her leaning into her clear favorite, Paul Irving, who writes about his imaginary rock people. And Anne, at her core, is still the girl who made friends out of her reflection in a glass and an echo in a valley. So you can see why she resonates with Paul's kindred imaginings. Uh, I love Paul and his rock people. It's so sweet thinking about this boy going down to the shore and seeing in the beautiful rocks and cliffs like the faces of potential friends. I think that's just really charming and I can see why Anne was so taken with Paul. Yeah. And each book in the Anne series opens up Anne's world a little bit more and introduces her to more people who turn out to be kindred spirits. That's a really significant through line. I think Paul is like on another level in terms of his almost otherworldly outlook on life. And you see Anne give to Paul what Miss Stacy gave to her, an older, respected mentor who understands, encourages, and validates imagination. We also get a terrible teaching day in which a grumpy Anne suffering from toothache is harsh with her pupils, ending the afternoon with telling the boys to toss a parcel, which she had supposed to contain contraband sweets, into the fire, only to have that parcel turn out to be full of firecrackers. (laughs) We see those flashes of Anne's pride as she doubles down on her bad mood and finally smacks Anthony Pye's hands with the pointer for putting a mouse in her desk drawer. Well, it's kind of unclear in the text whether she's rapping on his hands or his rear end with the pointer, but at any rate, she has compromised her ideals and resorted to corporal punishment. She's quickly so ashamed of herself, but then, contrarily, it turns out that Anthony respects her all the 
more for it, and it's finally won over to Anne's side. According to Mrs. Lynde, he says he believes you are some good after all, even if you are a girl. Says that whipping you gave him was just as good as a man's. Oh, God. Yeah, maybe we don't look at this for, like, <laughs> lessons in how to teach. But, no, you know, no. I think it was I a think, product of its time. It was a product think, of its time. This one might not hold up. And then, of course, when Anne bemoans that she has betrayed her ideals and that her theory of teaching with kindness can't be wrong, Mrs. Lynde consoles her with, no, but the pies are an exception to every known rule. That's what. <laughs> Anne of Avonlea also gives us some more characterization of Anne and her friendships. We see plenty of Anne and Diana, some of Anne and Jane, both friends from Avonlea, but we also see Anne and her classmate from Queens, Priscilla Grant, who is teaching at the nearby Carmody School, and how their friendship evolves. In the Queens chapter in Anne of Green Gables, Priscilla is described as being dreamy like Anne, and that's developed more in this book. I really like that Anne finds more people to daydream with in this book, more people who appreciate her sort of poetical nature. It feels very true to me, right? Like as you grow up and leave your family of origin, you start finding the other people in the world who are like you, almost like gravity pulls you together. So Anne finds Priscilla and Paul and later on Miss Lavender, all these people who delight in whimsy, just like Anne does. You know, that brings me back to one of our early on discussions about Diana and friendship and almost that distinction we were talking about with Diana being the friend, their friendship shaping each other. Right. And as they grew and even though it started from a friendship of proximity. Right. And how then as you go out into the world, you do, you meet people where what pulls you together is something else, something else that you have in common or a worldview or a way that you experience the world. And that's what pulls you to newer people when proximity is no longer the biggest factor. Right. And I think it's interesting how, as you get older and go out into the world, how many more people you encounter who are like you, who kind of share your values or your outlook on the world or your hobbies or your interests. I think there is almost something faded, maybe is the word I'm looking for, about the people that come into your life. And I, I think it's interesting how Anne starts to kind of experience that. Yeah. Anyway, so Anne announces to Diana, Jane, and Priscilla that she's going to celebrate her birthday with a picnic and invites them all along. Now, hilariously, Anne decides to celebrate her birthday a few months late, deciding that she should have been born in spring, not winter. Now, I guess it's a geographic difference, but where we live, March is definitely full spring. <laughs> I'm a March baby like Anne, and I always felt like I had a spring birthday. But I guess with Prince Edward Island being so far north, it's not really like springy spring until April or May. I was thinking the same thing, but I guess I remember from living on the East Coast that early March is at the very least, very dreary, rainy, and cold. And here in Southern California, well, except this year, early March is definitely spring. But I appreciate that Anne just declares a birthday celebration for herself during the time of the year she loves the most. Why not? Why not indeed? And it's a bright spring day with blossoming trees and flowers and the girls set out with a picnic of all the daintiest little treats and nibbles and lemonade. Anne is really in her element here. And I have to say that I just loved this chapter. It felt like the full cottagecore fantasy. <laughs> the group of them embracing the spring witch work as Maud describes it and dancing around like wood nymphs. I love that Diana and Jane go along for the ride and that Priscilla is every bit as enchanted as Anne is. At one point, Anne and the girls find a little pond and Anne charges them with coming up with an evocative name for it. I'm going to read the scene aloud. It's so funny to me. Birch Pool, suggested Diana promptly. Crystal Lake, said Jane. Anne, standing behind them, implored Priscilla with her eyes not to perpetrate another such name. And Priscilla rose to the occasion with glimmer glass. Anne's selection was The Fairy's Mirror. The names were written on strips of birch bark with a pencil that school ma'am Jane produced from her pocket and placed in Anne's hat. Then Priscilla shut her eyes and drew one. Crystal Lake, read Jane triumphantly. Crystal Lake it was. And if Anne thought that Chance had played the pool a shabby trick, she did not say so. I laughed so hard at this little exchange. Mm -hmm. And Diana is her truest friend, but despite Anne's influence, is still rather prosaic. And Jane yep. has never been anything other than practical. Birch pool, poor Anne. <laughs> and you can see Anne's tiny flicker of despair at those boring names. Not another birch path, not another birch path. <laughs> so I love that she has a poetic friend in Priscilla to at least silently commiserate with. 
Well, and glimmer glass, I think, is actually my favorite of the bunch. So good job, Priscilla. I know. It's gorgeous. That one should have just won. Yeah. (laughs) So this day is also when the girls discover Hester Gray's garden. And Diana tells the story of the young bride who tragically died young and whose garden remained. Anne is captivated by this story, the romance and pathos of it, and feels that Hester must have been a kindred spirit. Reagan, what do you make of Anne's fascination with Hester Gray? If you remember... And killed off most of the heroines that she wrote about in Story Club. Truly. So she, yeah. So she clearly feels that death can be deeply romantic. Hester was deeply loved by her husband, though an enigma to most of the other town folk. And I think Anne finds a kinship there as someone who isn't always understood by the practical Avonlea residents. Mm-hmm. And Hester delighted in nature, much the same way that Anne does. So really, someone who was deeply loved and died gently, surrounded by beauty, is a figure upon which Anne can project all sorts of poetry. Anne really does feel that a few years of perfect, beautiful happiness are better than a lonely, dull, or mean long life. What's interesting about Hester Gray, though, is she represents how Anne is evolving regarding her feelings about death and romance. While Anne cheerfully killed off hosts of wealthy heroines and brooding heroes in her stories, the stories of her childhood, it's because those stories were about the pursuit of love, the potential of love, not the very boring, prosy love that is a working marriage over the course of years. And Hester is an evolution of that. She wasn't wealthy and she didn't live an extravagant life, but she was worshipped by her young husband and all she needed was his love. Mm-hmm. She left him sad and bereft, proof of how much she had been loved, and her dying was beautiful and gentle. But in the next book, in Anne of the Island, Anne gets to see up close her friend Ruby dying a slow death from consumption, and Anne finally sees death not as a romantic finale to a story, but the tragedy of a life that's interrupted all too abruptly. Reagan, I think that your point about this story being sort of a moment where Anne is showing her evolution in her ideas about romance is really profound. You know, she had such high ideals for romance. We talked about previously, like nothing could ever live up to that, right? How could Mm -hmm. she ever expect to find that level of romance in her own life? And it is kind of through these experiences, whether it's uh, seeing Hester Gray's garden, hearing about sort of the romances of her friends and neighbors, or even unfortunately the death of beloved friends that gets her to recalibrate some of what she thinks she wants when it comes to a life filled of romance. Mm-hmm. This is a step in the evolution, I think, mm-hmm. where she still finds it so very romantic, partly because there is so little known about it. She can project onto Hester all of her poetry, all of what she might imagine that this little romance between Hester Gray and Jordan Gray might feel like without any complicated you know she didn't live long enough for them to argue and didn't live right didn't live long enough for them to be in church as an old bickering couple or something of that didn't live long enough to have the challenges of raising children or hard years of bad crops or any of those other things that you have to encounter when you're weathering a life with someone no just a beautiful death literally laid out in a bower of roses i mean that is pretty poetic. Oh, Reagan, I really love this chapter. It is right in the middle of the book. So it's kind of like this gentle little waypoint, a place to kind of stop and sink into the poetry and imagination of the book. It is just this moment of pure youthful bliss. The girls are at that really magical age of being grown up enough that they have a fair amount of freedom, but young enough that they're not weighted with responsibility. They're close enough to childhood to indulge these flights of fancy, but still old enough to know that they need hearty sandwiches as well as dainty tea cakes. (laughs) And they're just living in the moment, noticing everything around them and appreciating the world and each other. The chapter closes with this quote. I wonder what a soul, a person's soul would look like, said Priscilla dreamily. Like that, I should think, answered Anne pointing to a radiance of sifted sunlight streaming through a birch tree. Only with shape and features, of course. I like to fancy souls as being made of light, and some are all shot through with rosy stains and quivers, and some have a soft glitter like moonlight on the sea, and some are pale and transparent like mist at dawn. I read somewhere that souls were like flowers, said Priscilla. Then your soul is a golden narcissus, 
said Anne, and Diana's is like a red, red rose. Jane's is an apple blossom, pink and wholesome and sweet, and your own is a white violet with purple streaks in its heart, finished Priscilla. Jane whispered to Diana that she really could not understand what they were talking about. Could she? (laughs) I love that little coda line there that... Priscilla and Anne are in the grips of true poetry. And yep. Jane and Diana are like, what? Okay. <laughs> just sort of stirring their tea. You just hear like a little crunch as Jane bites into her sandwich. <laughs> well, Anne's first year of teaching comes to an end. And there's a chapter when Anne takes stock of where she is. Still studying in the hopes of going to college, perhaps, but also feeling more connected to Avonlea than ever. From beloved students like Paul Irving to good friends like Mrs. Allen, the minister's wife, to Matthew Cuthbert in the Avonlea graveyard. You can see that she's settled into her place in the community in a profound way. Priscilla tells Anne that her aunt is Mrs. Morgan, the famous author, who Anne and Diana both revere. And that Mrs. Morgan and Priscilla will come to Green Gables for lunch. Anne spends the next two chapters in an absolute fervor of preparation to meet her idol, planning a perfect menu and decorating Marilla's parlor to the nines. Anne invites Miss Stacy and Mr. and Mrs. Allen and Diana to the lunch. She even borrows a special willow ware platter from Aunt Josephine for the occasion. Just as everything is being set out, Davy manages to fall into the lemon pie. But otherwise, everything is going well until Mrs. Morgan never arrives. Anne later learns that Mrs. Morgan had sprained her ankle and had been unable to come. And Anne didn't get the message until it was too late. They go through with the lunch, minus Davy, who was in his room as punishment for spoiling the pies. But Anne's heart just wasn't in it. After the guests leave and Anne is cleaning up, she finds Aunt Josephine's willowware platter shattered at the bottom of the staircase. The culprit, of course, Davy, who had knocked over a conch shell while listening at the stairs for the end of the meal when he could get his plate. The willowware platter thing ends up being pretty troublesome because, of course, a replacement would be expensive and rare. Anne says she knows it costs $20, which Google tells me would be about $600 today. That's a lot. That's a lot for a platter. This is a pretty big deal. Anne wants to see if she can find a replacement for the platter, but... Marilla says there's no hope of finding a similar one, and Anne is resolved to pay Aunt Josephine the $20. A few days later, Diana finds out that someone in Avonlea may have a similar platter, the cop girls who live on the Tory Road. Now, this is a small town detail that I absolutely love. Diana tells Anne that the road is called the Tory Road because the only families who live on it are all notorious liberals, similar to calling a place a grove because it has no trees on it. (laughs) <laughs> the girls go to see the cop sisters who are not at home, so they, and this is perhaps not their best moment, decide to peer through the window of the pantry to see if they can see the platter. In doing so, Anne falls through the roof of the chicken coop, gets stuck, <laughs> and then it starts to rain. It's so bonkers. And then Anne, because she's Anne, writes a little short story about flowers talking to each other. Yeah, she gets a quick inspiration. Just She just goes for it. In due time, one of the cop sisters comes home, frees Anne from the coop by chopping it down, and agrees to sell the platter to Anne, but for $25. <laughs> oh, well. And a few weeks later, Anne is doing chores at home, including some very messy chores, like changing the down filling on her mattress, which seriously, I can't even imagine how tedious and chaotic that would be. Mm-hmm. And she's doing chores pretty much the way I do them, wearing old clothes she doesn't mind getting dirty and experimenting with a new beauty treatment. While I might wear a face mask, Anne went with a tonic to lighten her freckles, which she has applied liberally to her nose as she set out to do her chores. And of course, it's on this day that Priscilla and Mrs. Morgan arrive for lunch, just dropping in unannounced. Of course, the day the feathers are everywhere. So Anne signals to Diana for reinforcement. And when Diana comes over to see what's going on, she also discovers that Anne has dyed her nose red, having grabbed red dye, not the lightning tonic. Marilla's poor labeling system strikes again. Green Gables seriously needs those ladies from the home edit. I know. (laughs) A label maker, please. At least. 
Anne is able to wash off the red dye and change into a dress that's not covered in feathers while Diana rushes home to get a roast chicken. Anne scrapes up a wonderful lunch with the chicken, fresh bread, and Marilla's stock of delicious preserves. Anne and Diana have an absolutely dreamy time meeting their literary heroine. It's so funny. So we do see some of Anne's classic vanity still peeking through, even now that she is a very grown-up lady. (laughs) She's not quite ready to resolve to accept her freckles. Mm Mm-hmm. So then we move into Anne's second year of teaching. By now, Davy and Dora are old enough to attend school for the first time. Davy is delighted to get a chance to hang out with so many other kids, especially his best buddy, Milty Bolter, who seems to be quite an influence over Davy and not necessarily a good one. There's an awful lot of things that Davy says. Uh, Milty Bolter says, Milty Bolter told me. <laughs> Most of them are pretty bizarre. They are. Anne and Diana take a long four-mile hike to visit a friend, but end up getting lost and stumbling across Echo Lodge, a little stone house that is home to a Miss Lavender Lewis, an old maid of 45 who is, quote, quite gray. (laughs) I mean, come on. I would be offended, but I suppose when I was 17, I thought of 45 as very old. Miss Lavender is another whose youthful romance was thwarted by a quarrel. This one to Stephen Irving, Paul Irving's father. Miss Lavender has what she calls a handmaiden named Charlotta IV. As it turns out, Charlotta's older sister had all been Miss Lavender's girls in succession, and they all looked so much alike that Miss Lavender called them all Charlotta. Miss Lavender has snow white hair, again, 45, (laughs) and is very fanciful and whimsical. She sets the table for six despite not having visitors because she pretended to have a tea party because she was lonely. Anne delights in this, of course. She stays for tea and she and Miss Lavender quickly become fast friends. Do we know anyone in their 40s who has white hair? I mean, some people have gray for sure, but is anyone like fully white at this time? No white. Well, okay. On the Duffy side of my family, Mm -hmm. they do go gray pretty early. My grandmother may have been fully white hair by 45. Seems like, I mean, I I know it's possible, but it does yeah. seem like that is, that's it, young I, to be full gray, full white. Yes, yes. So following this interlude with Miss Lavender, we get the news that Davy and Dora will be staying permanently at Green Gables, their uncle having since died of consumption and leaving $2,000 for them to inherit as a trust the interest of which to provide for their care until they're grown. Anne and Marilla are happy about this news, and the additional money is a neat answer to how they will continue to afford two growing children. Anne and Miss Lavender grow closer as friends, and Miss Lavender gives Anne all the details of her romance with Stephen Irving, the quarrel that drove them apart, and the pride that kept them from reconciling. All of this is pretty important for one Anne Shirley to hear, but instead... The wheels in Anne's brain start turning, and she decides to introduce Paul Irving to Miss Lavender. Anne justifies it because Paul and Miss Lavender are both imaginative people who would connect to each other. But she is also aware that Miss Lavender is sorry that she lost Paul's father, and Paul grieves the loss of his mother. So I do think there is an ulterior motive, even if Anne won't admit it to herself. Paul and Miss Lavender meet and instantly connect. Paul even asks Miss Lavender if she would like a kiss. It's a really touching moment, and of course, it foreshadows the role Miss Lavender will one day play in Paul's life. Anne just can't help meddling, can she? I think this is the first instance of Anne meddling in other people's romances that we will see going forward in a lot of the other books as well. And then after her success with this one, she really takes it upon herself to bring as many people together as possible. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So next, Anne and Gilbert get up to some mischief with placing fake notices in the paper. And Reagan, I have so many questions. (laughs) How did this come about? Why did they decide to do this? What did they hope to accomplish? I truly want to see the scene where the two of them are like hanging out in the parlor at Green Gables and laughing themselves silly creating this fake notice for the paper. Uh, Seriously, please, listeners, can someone please write me that fanfic? (laughs) I think it's a little bit of these two are very bright, ambitious people and Avonlea is slow and provincial. I think they were a little bored. I think they were a little bored, but I love it because it's demonstrating the closeness of Anne and Gilbert's friendship out without anyone else. They have a similar sense of humor and Anne is clearly more mischievous when she's with Gilbert than when she's with anyone else. 
oh, I know. Can you imagine her doing this with anyone else? I truly think that Gilbert is kind of bringing out this side of her. Yes, I think he is. Two of the notices that they posted in the paper indicate that there will be a wedding coming up and that Uncle Abe, a local prognosticator who is almost always wrong, will be proved right when a violent storm comes to the island as he predicted. And while all this is just pure nonsense cooked up by Gilbert and Anne, both events actually do come to pass. There is a terrible storm which causes a great deal of property damage and ruins much of the spring planting, a great blow to the farming community. And very sadly, Mr. Harrison's profane parrot Ginger also dies in the storm. Ginger is hit by lightning. Wait, Ginger is hit by lightning? How did I not remember that? Yeah, I think so, because the hired boy says that they were struck, and I'm assuming he means struck by lightning, that it went all the way through Ginger's cage into the floor. Okay, that's actually a perfect death for that animal. Yeah, it's poetic (laughs) in a different kind of way. In its own way, yes, poetic justice, maybe. (laughs) And it is sad for Mr. Harrison, who kept the obscene bird out of loyalty, of course, to his brother, the sailor. A little while later, a lady comes by Green Gables asking directions to Mr. Harrison's house and points her to the right address and then learns that the unknown woman is none other than Mr. Harrison's wife. Bananas. Bananas. Mr. (laughs) Mr. Harrison has been giving out that he's a bachelor. Mr. Harrison's wife had heard of the notices in the paper and wanted to make sure that the upcoming wedding was not his. Finding out from Anne that Ginger the parrot has shuffled off this mortal coil, Mrs. Harrison cheerfully remarks that she can handle James A. with the bird out of the way and heads up to his house. Hilariously, Mrs. Harrison is as tidy as Mr. Harrison is slovenly. And the next time Anne visits the Harrison house, she finds it neat as a pin with everything ship shape. Mr. Harrison tells Anne that he and Mrs. Harrison married in haste following the death of Mr. Harrison's sister. They seemed to really like each other, but their many differences led to constant arguments, and they were too stubborn and prideful to make up and compromise. Again, important information for Miss Anne Shirley. I hope she's listening. You have lots of examples, Anne. Don't go down the same path. Take notes, Anne. Mrs. Harrison becomes fast friends with Rachel Lynde, almost immediately assuring her place in Avonlea society. Anne then learns that Gilbert is resigning his post and will start at Redmond College in the fall. Anne, who does not have enough for tuition, has a moment of regret that her and Gilbert's paths will diverge and that she will not go to college in the fall as she had hoped. But Davy consoles Anne with a snuggle and a kiss, and Anne is reminded of the comforts and joys of Green Gables. Okay, you know what, Reagan? I figured it out. I think I like Davy more now because he reminds me of our little pandemic puppy, Hamhawk. Hamhawk is such an unholy terror of mischief. I mean, nothing is safe when that boy is around, but he's also such a sweet, cuddly little love that no matter what he does, I can never be truly mad at him. Okay, I see where you get that. And maybe if I think of Davy as my somewhat obstreperous puppy, Luna, <laughs> I, will, I, will, I will love Davy a little more. He is a bit less annoying than I found him in previous reads. I think one of the other things that annoys me about him is the way that Maud writes him with his bad grammar and, quote, comical actions. Yeah. I I don't know. It just gets in the way of me liking Davey totally. But I'm still miffed on Dora's behalf, honestly. Oh, fair enough. Fair enough, truly. Anne of Avonlea starts winding down in a way that echoes the ending of Anne of Green Gables with the death of Thomas Lind, Mrs. Rachel's husband. Although it's not as tragic for the readers as Matthew's death, it does signal a shift and presents a new conundrum for Mrs. Lind, who cannot keep their house and farm by herself. Marilla invites Mrs. Lind to live at Green Gables, knowing that she'll be heartbroken if her friend goes to live with one of her children away from Avonlea. The two women find a way to segment the ground floor of Green Gables so they each have their own space, but having Mrs. Rachel in the house means that Marilla will have help with Davy and Dora, help around the house generally, and a source of extra income. With that, Marilla is able to offer Anne the opportunity to go to Redmond College in the fall, after all. Maud gives us this beautiful passage as Anne considers Marilla's offer. Anne had a long meditation at her window that night. Joy and regret struggled together in her heart. She had come at last, suddenly and unexpectedly, to the bend in the road, and college was around it with a hundred rainbow hopes and visions. But Anne realized as well that when she rounded that curve, she must leave many sweet things behind. All the little simple duties and interests which had grown so dear to her in the last two years and which she had glorified into beauty and delight by the enthusiasm 
she had put into them. She must give up her school, and she loved every one of her pupils, even the stupid and naughty ones. The mere thought of Paul Irving made her wonder if Redmond were such a name to conjure with after all. I've put out a lot of little roots these two years, Anne told the moon, and when I'm pulled up, they're going to hurt a great deal. But it's best to go, I think, and, as Marilla says, there's no good reason why I shouldn't. I must get out all my ambitions and dust them off. Oh, I just love this. I love, I must get out all my ambitions and dust them. I think about that all the time when I get like kind of, I don't know, tired or burnt out with work or whatever. It's like, okay, I need to recuperate and then I will get out my ambitions. Anyway, Anne, you can see, is now totally enmeshed in Avonlea society and she's become part of the community by being the school teacher. And she's understandably reluctant to give all of that up. But college has always been the goal for her, ever since winning the Avery Scholarship. She decides to go, and she will join Gilbert in the fall. At this point, the trajectory of the book shifts to Anne wrapping up her relationships with the people of Avonlea. Well, I think one of the things that, by not jumping right to college, but spending this two more years in Avonlea, putting down roots as an adult, it's, again, it's this continuing of Anne having a home that she can now gradually move away from. Yeah. And that she truly has this foundation underneath her. And she truly has this experience of belonging in her community that let her take the risk and go to college. Right. We talked in our previous season about how over the course of the book, Anne becomes a daughter of Green Gables. She lives up to the title, Anne of Green Gables. And the same thing happens here. Over the course of this book, Anne becomes Anne of Avonlea, right? She belongs to the community, not just to Marilla, not just to Green Gables, not just to her good friends, but to the whole community. And it's a really beautiful shift to see. We also see that Anne accomplished her goal. You know, when she deferred her admission to Redmond, it was with the goal of helping Marilla, who she knew was losing her eyesight and not able to manage Green Gables on her own. By the time that Anne leaves, that situation has changed dramatically. Anne now has Mrs. Lind to help her. She has a source of income both from the Children's Trust and from the rent that Mrs. Lind is able to pay. And Green Gables is going to be okay without her two years later. Whereas at the beginning of this book, Green Gables wouldn't have been okay without her. Exactly. Anne's second year of teaching comes to an end and she says goodbye to all her pupils. Anne learns that Mr. and Mrs. Allen are also going to leave Avonlea, indicating another bend in the road. Diana vows to continue to put flowers on Matthew's grave for Anne and on Hester Gray's grave as well. Diana and Anne renew their vows of friendship to each other, even as they know their paths will forever diverge. Anne to college, Diana very likely to marriage. This book ends the way all books should, in my opinion, with a romantic reunion, a reconciliation, an engagement, and a wedding. Stephen Irving comes home to find that his son has struck up a friendship with his old sweetheart, Miss Lavender. He asks Anne if she will talk to Miss Lavender about reintroducing them. Anne agrees and speaks to Miss Lavender about it, who also agrees, saying, well, he's only coming as any old friend might. Now, Anne and the reader know that this is ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) Romance is in the air, (laughs) as surely as Miss Lavender's enchanted garden blooms in the summertime. Stephen Irving comes, and they take a walk together and return to Miss Lavender's storybook stone cottage, arm in arm. Anne and Charlotta IV have been spying on them the whole time, of course, and Anne cried happy tears at their reunion perplexing the practical Charlotta, who opined that there's many worse things than a husband. (laughs) There are many worse things than a husband. He's not wrong. As plans for Miss Lavender and Mr. Irving's wedding are in full swing, Diana announces that her beau, Fred Wright, has proposed. She's over the moon with glee and immediately sets to work on her trousseau, knowing she'll have a long engagement since her mother won't let her marry until she's 21. That's Mrs. Barry, right? The soul of propriety. Anne is delighted for her friend but also aware of how this separates them. Anne is a romantic in her heart, but not ready for actual romance, while Diana is far more pragmatic and realistic and found love close to home. Anne is a wee bit disappointed in Diana, marrying such an ordinary and known a person as Fred, rather than the tall, handsome ideal who had to do, quote, something splendid to win her heart that Diana had wanted as a child. Well, and as we were talking about earlier, this goes back to this is the kind of information that Anne needs to see and absorb in order for her to be able to reconcile her own romantic visions from childhood with what will make for a happy future for her. Yes. 
Yes, you know, absolutely. She might see Diana as settling for Fred now, but there will come a time when she realizes that Diana actually made a very wise choice and set a good example. Miss mm-hmm. Lavender and Mr. Irving are set to marry under the honeysuckle trellis, the same spot he first proposed to her almost 25 years ago. My heart! <laughs> I want a wedding do-over so I can also be married under a honeysuckle trellis or maybe under your beautiful jasmine trellis which is absolutely popping off right now yes we will lend you our jasmine trellis anytime Kelly <laughs> their wedding is perfection the day of the wedding is gray and threatens to rain but at the moment of their vows the sun comes out and shines right on the couple. Miss Lavender and Mr. Irving head off into the sunset for their honeymoon, leaving Anne and Charlotta to tidy up and relive the best moments of the day together. Gilbert arrives to walk Anne home that evening, and it's clear that he is deeply in love with Anne, although he wisely keeps that to himself. Anne, for her part, starts to wonder if maybe love, quote, did not come into one's life with pomp and blare, like a gay knight riding down. Perhaps it crept to one's side, like an old friend through quiet ways. Perhaps it revealed itself in seeming prose, until some sudden shaft of illumination flung athwart its pages, betrayed the rhythm and the music, perhaps. Perhaps love unfolded naturally out of a beautiful friendship, as a golden-hearted rose slipping from its green sheath. Ah, oh, that is just one of my favorite quotes the best. And then for Anne, this is the first time it's occurred to her that romance is not always this dramatic, thunderstruck moment of realization, but could also be a steady and growing knowing. But she's not entirely ready to set aside her ideas of high romance just yet. The book closes there, ripe with anticipation for the next chapter in Anne's life. And I think there's a lot to talk about there in these last few chapters with Anne musing on her own ideals of romance while seeing Diana get engaged to such a lovely but ordinary guy as Fred. Mm -hmm. Anne's also feeling somewhere deep inside something romantic for Gilbert starting to grow, but is not ready to look at that. And in fact, shuts it down specifically. Diana even asks if she has considered Gilbert. And she's like, nope, only as a friend. No, what are you talking about? (laughs) But I think we may have an episode on that on its own. So we'll leave that there and come back and talk about it later in depth. Yeah, there's a lot more to say about about Anne and romance. I think we've really only just scratched the surface in this. Absolutely. That's one of the things that makes Anne of Avonlea so beautiful is seeing Mm -hmm. that evolution for Anne. All right, kindred spirits, as you may recall from season one, we like to wind down our episodes by sharing what we call a puffed sleeve moment from the book. Now, this is something that we didn't get to talk about in the main discussion. We think of a puffed sleeve moment as a sort of frivolous or unnecessary moment that is nevertheless a detail that we find especially delightful. Mine for Anne of Avonlea is during Anne's magical cottagecore fantasy birthday picnic, (laughs) (laughs) which will definitely be the theme of my next birthday by the way. (laughs) But this is that Anne brought glasses and lemonade for the other girls to drink, but she herself instead drank cold brook water from a cup fashioned out of birch bark. Way to commit to the bit, Anne. (laughs) My favorite part about that little moment is that the water didn't taste very good at all, but Anne (laughs) loves the poetry of that experience more than she cares about how the water tastes. She's in her wood nymph era. (laughs) She is 100% in her wood nymph era. (laughs) For my puffed sleeve moment, I love this quote that again shows us that Anne still has some of that little 11-year-old we first met in her. Anne and Diana are talking about Miss Lavender on their way home after meeting her. Anne says, I think her parents gave her the only right and fitting name that could possibly be given to her. If they had been so blind as to name her Elizabeth or Nellie or Muriel, she must have been called Lavender just the same, I think. It's so suggestive of sweetness and old-fashioned graces and silk attire. Now my name just smacks of bread and butter and patchwork and chores. Oh, I don't think so, said Diana. Anne seems to me real stately and like a queen. But I'd like Karen Hoppock if it happens to be your name. I think people make their names nice or ugly just by what they are themselves. I can't bear Josie or Gertie for names now. But before I knew the pie girls, I thought them real pretty. That's a lovely idea, Diana said Anne enthusiastically, living so that you beautify your name, even if it wasn't beautiful to begin with, making it stand in people's thoughts for something so lovely and pleasant that they never think of it by itself. 
I love that this conversation helps Anne pass one of her little follies, the idea that names are destiny, and gives her a little space to have a new outlook, not just on her name, but on others as well. Another just little moment of growth for Anne. That is a sweet moment. And I think also a pretty universal experience. I think a lot of people have those names that they like, but then there's some unpleasant person in our lives who have them. And then we're like, nope, that's ruined forever. Yep. yep. <laughs> Anne of Avonlea is a book that is rich with inspiration. We are keeping our inspired by segment this season because we love showering you with our recommendations for things that we love and think you will love too. So my inspired by Anne is that I recently read the book Enchantment by Catherine May. It's a memoir, sort of, inspired by May's burnout related to the pandemic lockdown and how she used the pursuit of enchantment to find her way out of it. It was a really powerful read for me because I'm also someone who really needs to remind myself to get out of my head and put myself in the way of wonder, appreciation, and reverence for the sheer experience of living. May says, enchantment is small wonder, magnified through meaning, fascination caught in the web of fable and memory. It is the sense that we are joined together in one continuous thread of existence with the elements constituting this earth and that there is a potency trapped in this interconnection. Reagan, come on. I know Anne would love this book. (laughs) She might have written it herself as someone who is so open to wonder, so ready to receive mundane magic, someone who wants to be enchanted by the world around her. There's lots of wonderful moments in Anne of Avonlea where she finds the romance of daily life, of small village folk, of big trees and little boys and lost cows. It's a book that really only works if the readers believe that there is enchantment in Avonlea. Catherine May's book really takes Anne's outlook and makes a philosophy out of it. She explains that engaging with layers of history and life isn't a means to an end, but a practice in and of itself, one that requires curiosity, reverence, and ceremony. And most importantly, you create your own meaning. We are not the passive recipients of the numerous, May writes, but the active constructors of a pantheon. So that's Enchantment by Catherine May. Oh, well, that sounds lovely. Well, it really feels like spring here. And I feel like Anne of Avonlea is definitely a book that celebrates spring, really revels in it. So I am inspired by getting out to local gardens wherever you live. Mm-hmm. I'm, my mom was just visiting and we went to the Huntington Library and Botanical Gardens and just loved seeing all the new greenery and blossoming flowers. The camellias were particularly gorgeous. It was a perfect, cool, sunny day for it. And it felt so good to be out in the sun after this unusually rainy winter. Reagan, consider me inspired. I think I'm going to go this weekend. I love the Huntington and it is truly such a treasure. And and you're so right about Anne of Avonlea. That really is a book to read if you are ready for spring or missing yeah. spring. Anne spends so much time appreciating flower gardens and blossoming trees and even the unpredictable spring weather. I think it also is so fitting for the season of Anne's life, right? She really is in the spring of her girlhood. Oh my gosh, yes, very much so. And then having recently reread Anne of the Island... I'm also kind of prepared to associate that book with autumn, right? It's a very autumnal book, back to mm-hmm. school, tweed and coats and blustery trees and rushing to classes. And now I'm kind of wondering if all of the Anne books, if there's like a strong connection to different seasons. I want to think about that some more. Thank you all for coming back to us for season two, Kindred Spirits. We are going to continue our discussion of Anne through Anne of Avonlea, Anne of the Island, and Anne of Windy Poplars centered around some of the themes that are guiding Anne through her young womanhood. We would love to hear from you about which of these books you love the best. Please look us up on Instagram at kindredspirits.bookclub or on Twitter at ksbcpod and tell us what you think. Be sure to follow us, like us, and leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts so other kindred spirits can find us soon. Thank you, kindred spirits. 